0: That there is no resurrection without a death. That there is no Easter Sunday without what I call bad Friday. People call it good Friday. I call it bad Friday. Um, There's nothing. We can't fast forward to the resurrection. And a lot of times we want to in our life. And even in this time in God's word, we want to fast forward. But we've tried to take a few weeks to slow down and to do some reflection and to ask ourselves what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to have a, a death before a resurrection? What are we really doing here? Who are we trying to be? And the question this morning is, who are you? You know, I think of my life in layers sometimes. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an onion, you know, including the smells, right? And we all, we all have many different layers to us. I want you to think about all the layers of your life. There are all these worlds, the world of your family, the world of your friends, The world of your work, my mind, my heart, sometimes seem like two different things. My past, my dreams, my imagination. I want you to think of the part of you that no one else even knows. Because we're all walking around and we're all talking to each other, but there's a part of you that I'll never know and a part of me that you'll never know. We're all building our personalities, our relationship networks, all the ways that we get or we maintain or build our sense of significance in this world and in this life. Some of us are building. And it, maybe if you're younger, maybe you kind of recognize this that some of us, whatever younger means, you know, we could all be younger. Um, but whatever that means, maybe if you're kind of trying to build your personality, trying to try things out hey, does this work? Does this fit? Hey, does this, is this way of acting in the world going to get me more or less? Is this way of being in the world unique, meaningful to others or to myself? Maybe you're seeing what works in your personality. Maybe, maybe some of us are maintaining successful personalities. There are, in this room, I know that there are several really successful personalities. And maybe a lot of your work is like maintaining, maintaining the, the juice, as it were. The charisma, maintaining that personality. And some of us maybe have realized that our personalities don't work. <laughs> and that's scary. Maybe you've realized in some way that the way of, that you are in this world, that the way that you are in relationships is actually destroying those relationships. That instead of creating or cultivating the intimacy that you're trying to get, maybe you've found that you've gone as far as you can go and it's hollow. And you have to kind of rethink things and reflect. Some of us are desperately trying to fix the broken things in us and everything in between. My question this morning is, how's it working out? How's it working out for you in your personality, in your mind, and in your heart, in that place where no one else goes? I'm talking about the thing behind the thing behind the thing. The part of you that no one else knows. I'm 33 years ancient. Sometimes I feel like I'm 5 or 50 or 500 years old. On, on, On one level, I'm trying to maintain a personality. At another level, I'm trying to deconstruct it. At still another, and maybe this is the healthiest place for me as we approach Good Friday and as we approach the death of Christ for us, I'm beginning to see that instead of trying to construct a life that I have to lose mine, In order to find something else, to find something more real, more meaningful. Let's pray as we dive into God's Word today. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I I want you to think about the landscape of your personality. What do you do to maintain, to create relationships, to keep the plate spinning? Maybe the question sounds like this in your head and your heart. What do you do to be significant in this life? How are you getting this significance? Is it your identity as a mother? Is it your identity as a father? Is it your identity as a worker? As a son? As a daughter? As a brother? As a sister? As a ball player, as a nerd, as the funny person in the room, what are you building your identity on? How are you significant in this life? to read some words of Jesus as you're praying. And I just want to throw them out. We're going to talk about them here in a minute, but I want you to really listen. Listen in that place that's behind all the stories. That's behind your personality. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Sit with that for a second. It's a tough text. Sit with the words of Jesus for a moment. Father, there's a million ways that we try to get significance in this world. A thousand ways that we identify ourselves. An infinite number of things that we attach to for meaning. God, would you show my friends and would you show me what we're holding on to? What our attachments are? How we define ourselves in this life? And God, would you reveal to us that deep, mysterious, profound truth that if we want to follow you, if we want to be your disciples, we have to let go. We cannot hold on to our definition of who we are, to the things that make us significant in this life. And this is a hard teaching. We need your help. We need your spirit to come into this place and into our hearts and our minds and to illuminate the darkness and bring life and light to us. We ask you to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, we've got two texts today. One is from Luke, the other is from Philippians. If you want to follow along, it should be on the screen. Or you can follow along in whatever app, whatever Bible. There are paper Bibles on the table. Let's go. Let's get it today. Let's check out the words of Jesus for us as we approach Resurrection Easter Sunday. It says this in Luke chapter 14, picking up in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said... Now, the first thing about this before we even get to Jesus' words is that Jesus was in the public eye for three years, only three years. His life was brief, but his public ministry, and that should be in air quotes because he didn't look at it that way. That would have been a concept foreign to him, but his time in the public eye teaching was only three years. That's it. And there was a time when he performed miracles, many miracles, and went viral, basically, Essentially, through word of mouth, the word spread that there was this traveling preacher that was healing people. All kinds of illness, all kinds of disease. And so thousands of people came from the countryside to follow Jesus. There was a time when the crowds also dissipated. There's a time of rising popularity and then a time when people started kind of disappearing. And this is about the time when people start disappearing and we'll see that's no accident at all. Je- Jesus turning to the crowds and saying stuff like this is the kind of thing that caused the people to leave him. Do you hear what I'm saying? We all thousands of years later look at this all in one unit. And maybe we miss that there was a time when thousands of people are following him, he says some things that are difficult, not and difficult's not even the right word. He says some things that are impossible, and people scatter. And then he dies, and they abandon him. That's what happens. They realize that Jesus wasn't this traveling genie to fix all of their stuff. And that's the thing that causes them to leave. We could just stop there. Because what about us? What about you? What about me? How do we approach God? How do we approach Jesus? How do we approach the resurrection? And this is what he said. And this is part of the thing that causes so many people, so many thousands of people to leave. And I've read it to you before, even today, but, but check it out. In verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even Their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. These verses have always bothered me. Always. I feel like in my life, and again, I'm 33 years old, I think. Yes. In my life, I feel like I'm just barely coming to a place where I can kind of, sort of, maybe begin to understand the thing that Jesus was talking about here. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to understand it today, because you might. And I pray that we do. Obviously, Jesus does not mean hate in the way that it sounds on its face. And if you think he does, you probably need to hear a different message. Because the rest of this one probably is not going to make much sense to you. If you read words in the Bible, and you can't understand that when Jesus says, if you don't hate, that, that he's not talking about our emotional idea, conception of hate. He doesn't mean that. In my first couple decades of hearing this verse, the best that I could grasp on this, that Jesus was saying that in comparison to your love for Jesus... You should hate your family. That if I could tease out your love and I could quantify it. And we do this all the time with our kids. Like our kids do this. Little kids especially. Maybe some of you teenagers don't do this so much anymore. But Haven will put a name on how, or a number on how much she loves something. And she'll compare things that she loves that don't make any sense whatsoever right now. Like... She said to us a couple weeks ago, I think I love, you know what, I think I love beans more than I love Ruby. Ruby is a dog, okay? Beans are a food. They, that doesn't go together. Like, like, she'll say, I think I love you like six million. Like, okay, that sounds good. Like, that sounds great. That's like the biggest number that she can think of. I used to think that this meant that like if I could quantify your love for your spouse or your significant other, and I quantified that at like 10, like it turned up to 10, your love for Jesus should go to like 100. You should be keeping it 100 with Jesus and keeping it 10 with your spouse. That, that is a little better than just hate, right? But even that does not really kind of get at the thing that Jesus is actually saying here. For, for help for this, we need to look at how Jesus' listeners, for the people listening to Jesus, how they saw their family. For the Jewish people following Jesus around in the desert, even for the Roman people, the, the, the people following him around. Your family defined your place in the world. Okay? This is different today in, in a lot of families and in a lot of respects. And you have all grown up in a very ruggedly individualistic culture. So we have this idea that I am not my family, you know? I'm not my mother. I'm not my father. I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to make a new way. I'm going to do my own thing. So for us, even accessing this, and some of you all come from different families where your family did define you, and maybe you can kind of relate to that. I think we all can. Anyone in a family can relate to this. But in Jesus' time and in his place, your family defined your place in the world. They defined your identity. Jesus is saying that if you cannot renounce the things that your culture says defines you, what identifies you, what you are attached to, Jesus is saying not that you need to go and, like, cuss out your family and leave your family and throw your family out of your house. In no way does he mean anything like that. He's talking about in the place, behind the place, behind the place, behind the place. behind all the stories that you tell yourself about yourself, behind your work, and how that defines you in the world, behind your family relationships and how they define you in the world, behind even the story that you tell yourself about yourself. Because what does he say? Yes, even their own life. Jesus is saying if you cannot renounce your attachment to your family and to whatever else defines you, you're not going to be able to follow me, he says. If, if, you're, if you're questioning what I'm saying, like, if you're saying, well, are you really, like, he says hate, so. Now, what does Jesus say about the people you hate, by the way? In case you need to go here with this. You know, in case you think, no, he means, like, hate, hate. Like, keep it at ten. Keep it at five. Keep it at negative infinity, in Haven's words. You know, if you're compared to Jesus. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So even if you thought that he was saying that you should think of your family as an enemy of you, it still doesn't work. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me. Now, if you're in the group of thousands of people following Jesus around in the desert, and you hear Jesus say, if you don't hate hate your father... They define me. They define my place in the world. I don't know who I am without my relationship to my father and to my mother and to my sister and to my brother and to my spouse. They define me. I don't. I'm untethered. And then he goes on to say, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me. For the people hearing Jesus the cross is not like a gold necklace around their neck. No offense to anyone who's wearing one. It helps you remind you of Jesus. I'm not, this is not what that's about. But that's not what it meant to them. When he says, whoever does not pick up their cross, he's saying, like, if you wanted to really apply it to our day, around your neck should be like an electric chair. Or, or I guess a needle. Because that's how the state kills people. For people in Jesus' day... The cross was not a sign or a mark of victory in any way. Not in any small way. It was a sign of a humiliating, torturous death. There were Romans who had crucified hundreds of people along the road on crosses like the one Jesus hung from. And they would just plant the crosses as a warning to anyone who didn't fall in line When he says, whoever does not pick up their cross and follow me, he's not talking about some psychological, melodramatic martyrdom. He's talking about death. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, here is an invitation to renounce all of the earthly identity you have. All of your standing in the world... This is an invitation to die. It's actually that. An invitation to die. To relinquish all of your attachments to everything. Now you may be thinking, and I think this too, like, wait a minute. I thought like the resurrection was a way to get what I wanted out of life. Or to get my problems fixed. Isn't that what Easter Sunday means? Is it like the cross is the cross... Because he's like resurrected and it all we all live happily ever after the end, right? That is not the message that Jesus gives his followers. Even if it's the message that we've made. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. This is already funny because the people following him around are poor people. They're not like people who build towers. So it's already funny. You can, like, it's, it's funny that he said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? And all the people said, infinity. Like, I can't even imagine the money that it would take to build a tower. Because I'm worried about how to eat next week. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish the people following Jesus weren't building towers. They were poor farmers, middle class merchants, etc. The parable is extreme because finding meaning and purpose in this life on your own is impossible. No matter how much we try, no, much, no matter how much stuff we do to better ourselves, no matter how much we grit our teeth. He wants to, us to consider the extreme, impossible cost. Instead of getting significance, he warns you get despair. Because you set out to build it and you find out, and, and we've done this, right? Those of you who are old enough to know better, whatever that even means, right? You know what it's like to try to build your personality on your own. If you've been around long enough, you know what it's t- like to try to muster up Whatever it is that you're supposed to be in this world, does it work? Is it enough? Is it ever enough? It's not. Look at verse 31. He says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? Is the guy with 10,000 going to be able to beat the guy with 20,000? Maybe. Maybe. Probably not, but maybe. And if he's not able, in verse 32, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off. And what will he do? He will ask for terms of peace. There is a war going on in each one of us. And I don't care what you try to tell yourself or anyone else. We all have deep questions about who we are and about our place in this world. Some of us question if we have a place in this world. The parallel is incredible. We can't make it. We're facing a force that is too extreme, that our only path forward is surrender, that the thing we fight and plan against and argue our way out of, for the king in the story, the answer isn't more soldiers. The answer isn't more effort. The answer isn't a more clever strategy or a way of modifying his behavior or saying the right words. The only way forward is surrender. Surrender. Giving up. And then he says in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have What what do you mean everything I have? And what do you mean give up? (laughs) What do you mean everything I have? And what do you mean by giving up? Again, it's Jesus saying that you today need to sell your house, sell your car, sell your kids. You know, like quit your job, go off. Some people are like, we can do that? No, you can't. Like, no. No, you can't. No, you can't. And Jesus is not saying that. What is he talking about? He's talking about the ways that you identify yourself. The ways that you gain significance. He says if you can't give all of that up, if you can't let it go, you cannot be my disciples. You can't follow me. There's no end around. There's no shortcut. Not just everything you have, family. Everything you are. Your identity as a mother your identity as a father, your identity as a worker, your identity as a son, as a daughter, as a husband, as a wife, your identity as anything, anything. We all have roles that we're playing. I'm not going to not be a husband. I'm not going to not be a father. I'm not not going to be a pastor or a friend or a brother, or a, or a son. But how am I going to find out how to do those things? How am I going to find life in the midst of those roles that I have no idea how to do it? Jesus offers us a way. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to give up all of your clutching. Jesus says this thing, this crazy thing, consider the cost, and the cost is everything. It is giving up everything. For the people listening to Jesus, by the way, we're sitting here, and we're not, I don't know if you notice but we're not Jewish. Like, for the people listening to Jesus, they had to give up even their religious understanding. Do we? It means giving up our attachment to everything. And then he says this weird thing in verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. He said that. It is thrown out. In the ancient world, salt was used. Maybe you've heard of salting fields, like when a a king would go through a field, of farmland, and they would salt a field to keep it from growing anything. Has anyone ever heard this? Maybe not. They would do that. There are stories of that. But there's actually no record of any toxicity in salt being long enough to truly kill a field. And in fact, in the ancient world, you used salt in certain quantities and in certain ways to increase the growth of crops in the soil, which I never knew until I looked it up. That actually salt, they would put it over manure. And yes, we're talking about manure. They would put it in manure to keep the manure from fermenting. Just nothing like talking about fermentation of manure on a Sunday morning, right? He's saying that your life was meant to grow stuff But your life is like the salt. It's like the stuff that helps the stuff grow. Not the stuff that grows maybe itself. And then if the salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. It's not good for even the manure pile. Don't you want to be good enough for the manure pile? (laughs) Do you want to be able to have your life grow something? Something meaningful? Something lasting? And then he says, whoever has ears to hear... Let him hear. He was always saying this, by the way. And I don't know if you can hear this today. I don't know if I can. He's saying if you can hear this, hear it. If you can hear this in a way that maybe you've never heard it before, hear it. It's another opportunity for life, another opportunity to make a change in how you identify yourself. We're going to look at one other passage today. And I think this maybe shows us a little bit of how Jesus did this. Of even that Jesus is not just like God's son that says, hey, here's the thing. Give up everything and follow me. But he actually shows us what it's like to do that. That Jesus walked the road that he intends us to actually follow. Look at Philippians 2. We'll pick up in verse 5. Just a few more verses for us today. Paul writes this from prison. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Literally, he writes, let this mind be in you. Not your mind. Not your mind with all of its clutching, with all of its attaching and grasping, with all of its desperation and justification and rationalization, let this mind, the heart of Jesus, the awareness of Jesus be in you. In verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God to be something to be used to his advantage or something to be grasped, other translations right? You know, we're going to rush on to the part about Jesus making himself a servant in this text. Maybe you're familiar with it. You know that's where this is going. But before we do this, Paul actually says have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Does that include verse 6? Because we rush on to the martyrdom angle. Except it isn't martyrdom. It is a deep, abiding relationship with God that informs the existence of Jesus. Did you hear what I said? It is a deep, meaningful awareness who being in very nature God What does the Bible say at its beginning? That in the beginning, God created man and woman in His image. In the image of God, He created them. I'm not trying to tell you you're God. Obviously, you're not. But Jesus had this awareness of who He was. And before you rush on to martyring yourself and renouncing everything, we need to realize that we're created in God's image. That there's good news before the bad news. He says have the same mind as Jesus, that Jesus' identity as God, that our identity as a children of God, that his life poured out of this place, that everything that follows comes from an awareness of who he is and who he isn't. And you can humble yourself, you can make yourself nothing, you can be a servant and it'd be fake unless you get your worth and your value from a deeper place. When you identify not with your roles or with your stuff, but with your security in the awareness that you came from the imagination of God and that you are his kids. Another translation says that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you hear the text? That he didn't consider his identity something to be just white-knuckled. Onto. That even his identity as God's son was something that he let go of. That he did not cling to. How do I know this? Look at verse 7. Rather, instead he made himself nothing. Nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That instead of ruling, instead of lording, instead of demanding, instead of forcing, instead of coercing, he makes himself nothing and he serves. As an expression of who he is, as an expression of who God is, he makes himself nothing. How could he do this? Like, if you're God, how do you make yourself nothing? You see, as everything, he didn't need to be anything. As everything, he didn't need to be anything. As God in the flesh, he could offer anything and everything. Obedient to what we see as a humiliating death, a devastating defeat, isn't devastating at all to someone who knows who they are, knows what they are. What happens when Jesus goes to the cross? What happens when, though he's everything, he makes himself nothing? This is what happens. Look at verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, to the beauty, to the weight, to the significance of God the Father. It is through Jesus making himself nothing that God bestows on Jesus everything. Do you understand what is being said in God's word? Do you understand that it isn't because of the miracles that Jesus was made everything? It wasn't, it wasn't because he rose Lazarus from the dead or caused the blind to see or the lame to get up and walk. It wasn't his magnificent teaching. It wasn't his power. It was his powerlessness, his willingness to be obedient, not to prove anything, but to make himself nothing. That God bestows on him Everything. This is the message of the death of Christ, one of many. But that Jesus really meant that if you want to find your life, you need to lose it. To lose all of your attachments to all of the things that you think you are or that you need to be or that you have to be. That through this death, you might find the life of Jesus. Paul says, have the same mind. as Have the same understanding. Be aware that you are God's kid made in his image. That you are made for good. Be willing to renounce all of your attachments to what you think you are or what you think you need to be. And serve. And love. <clears throat> Stop clutching. You don't need to grasp onto anything. Jesus is here. A lot of times, I want to fast forward. Like if I read past the death part super fast, I can get to the resurrection part. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way of Jesus. If you want to follow him, come follow him. Come give up everything. And more specifically, come give up your attachment to everything. Not that you would cease to exist, but that you might find your life with Christ. If anyone wants to come after him, you need to take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow Jesus. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? Take a minute. This is a tough teaching, this is a heavy word. Let's ask it this way. As we prepare to come before the communion prepare table. To, prepare to take communion together. To remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. The death of Jesus. That he could make a way for us out of all of our sin. All of our brokenness. All of our shame. All of our attachments to everything. I want you to ask yourself as you're praying today. What, what are you attached to? What are you clinging to? Central to communion is confession. So what are you clinging to today? This is your praying as you're kind of focused and as you're thinking about God's word to you today. I just want you to think about that. Just with whatever words make sense to you. Just take a couple minutes to breathe. Take a couple minutes to reflect. And what does it look like for you to let go of today? <clears throat> to come to the community table with open hands, not clutching, not clinging. What is it that you need to let go of today?